Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. everybody, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And today, Adam, we are doing a quick turnaround on one of the more anticipated releases of this holiday season, both because of its pedigree and because of its delivery mechanism, which is the new film by the Coen brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, now streaming on Netflix. Buster Scruggs is an anthology film, six odd stories set within the classic Western genre. And I'm going to ask Adam what this curious and quintessentially Cohen-esque movie can say to us about theology and the church and the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with the Ballad of Buster Scruggs for our upcoming lectionary Sunday, which will be Sunday, December 9th, the second week in Advent, year C. And finally, in our third segment postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. All right, Adam. So The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, newly on Netflix, six stories from the Old West, or at least six stories set within the genre confines of the classic Hollywood Western. Joel and Ethan Cohen, famous for Fargo and Big Lebowski and No Country for Old Men, have been writing these stories for years and then reached a production deal with Netflix to bring them to the small screen, though Buster is being released in a few theaters so that it will qualify for Oscar contention. Each of these stories takes up some classic Western iconography, like The Lone Cowboy or The Cattle Drive or The Old Man Looking for Gold. And each of them finds within these iconographies some of that quintessentially Cohen-esque brutality and beauty at the same time. I won't run through the plot of each of them up front, but I will say that it's hard to talk about any of them without spoiling their plots. So if you have not seen Buster Scruggs and intend to, you should probably stop now because I suspect we're going to spoil the heck out of at least some of these. In that vein, Adam, kick us off. What did you think? Did this feel like the next Coen Brothers movie you were waiting for? And more to the point, from these six disparate stories, did you see some common threads that could help us think about theology or the church or the world? So I'm never quite sure what I'm waiting for from the Coens. They have certainly earned the right to make whatever movies they want, but they have been notorious in the ways in which they choose subjects from a variety of different places. I think my first introduction to the Coen brothers was Miller's Crossing, which is basically a gangster film. But then I was able to move backwards in the catalog and watched Raising Arizona, which could be more different in tone and feel. And consistently throughout their career, they have zigged and zagged when people didn't expect it. And as they've done so, they've created some just monumentally beautiful pieces of filmmaking uh, and also some quite hilarious ones. And so their ability to do madcap next to uh, violent and and horrible and tragic is, um, is unparalleled, I think, within the film world. Um, with respect to this movie, I, I didn't know what to expect. I, I knew that they were doing a movie about the Westerns and that it had a sort of episodic 
type of nature, but I, I didn't know what was going to go on. And, and by the end of it, what I realized is that this movie, these are movies about death right. primarily. I mean, yeah. six stories about death and, yeah. and death in all of its forms and the ways in which we approach death in our own world. And so the movie begins with this cartoonish, um, uh, character, this cowboy who comes and just deals out death in a way that is, um, a little unnerving, but if you think about it from like a human perspective, but if you think about it as if it were like a Looney Tunes cartoon, it makes a lot of sense. But then the movie begins to tread into a, a lot of different, really interesting territory. There's questions in the second, uh, story about cyclical violence, um, and how, um, how beauty is an antidote to that. There is um, another story about this base and troubling desire to use and destroy each other for profit. There's another story about how often we try and plunder the hard work of others. Uh, the, the fifth story has these questions of um, how we struggle for survival and that struggle forms relationship, but it also seeds the eventual demise of the relationship that that even at the beginning of relationships the vulnerability that we share with each other in order to get into relationship is also the thing that makes us vulnerable to a really cruel world and then finally at the the, the last of these stories is is quite literally a about a stagecoach being driven by two reapers who are taking people to the afterlife uh so it's a it's a very strange film it, it feels impressionistic in a lot of ways but it's most definitely a coen brothers movie and and what seems present and on brand for them in this movie is that there is a sort of capriciousness to human existence and to god's action in the world if if god exists god is cruel or indifferent and this is not new territory for the coens they've tread this ground before with no country for old men but also fargo and i think a serious man are also doing this or asking these questions um but this movie also recognizes the stupidity of humans, the and the strange and magnificent ways that they tie themselves in knots, the 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 horrible self-awareness that they all have, the total inability to see what is just patently obvious to everyone else. And what I love about the Coens is that they find this mostly charming. Even though it is sad, even though it is tragic, they also find the human condition to be one of of great joy and celebration. And so the stories in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs are, are told about these flawed subjects who are on the precipice of death. Um, but at the same time, they, uh, they're attractive stories. They're attractive people, if only for the ways in which the, the Coens fashion them as, as, as living and breathing amidst this genre, these genre tropes and amidst the sort of overwhelming specter of death that so that's that's my initial reading of it as i watched it last night how about you as as you watched it what did you expect and 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 what is staying with you because i i think as you said in the at the top of the show this movie actually is it's locked itself into my imagination in a way that i didn't expect yeah it's gonna stick with me a lot which i think is a good sign and the sign of something that has got some some meat on it i i really liked this i there were places in it that I liked more than others, and we can talk about that. Um, and and in a second, I want to ask you what your favorite of these is, and maybe maybe something we could do is just work through them a little bit, um, and as individual stories. Um, and I think as individual stories, each of them has different hooks for me that will help me 
think and reflect theologically and may even may maybe even kind of think and reflect ecclesiologically uh but the the one thing i would add to uh your opening is just that i found this movie to be really beautiful um the 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 joy of working in six different western stories is that you get to take a broad sweep of six different kind of western locations and man they are living into the cinematographer dream here it's uh They've, the from the the snow cap of the Rockies to the the high plains of Wyoming to the kind of classic Wiley Coyote m- m- Monument Valley New Mexico look. Uh, this is it's a beautiful film to watch, and they are at the top of their game just in terms of putting a pretty picture on the screen and doing it in the service of a film that takes its time. I mean, this is two hours and fifteen minutes. Um, I never felt bored. I felt like I was being um, deliberately led through a story that did not see the need to rush, even at moments that were not overwhelmed with dialogue. And and I love the spoken word, and so I, I tend to uh, I tend to love movies that just that are that are just uh, talky talky. And this is not one of them. And it sometimes. That for me can be a challenge, but here I just thought it worked really beautifully. So that's the the other piece I would add. Well, that was the surprising part to me because I think that one of the great gifts that they have is their facility with language, right? And you get a little bit of that in the in the first sure uh, in the first story where the the main character of Buster Scruggs is this sort of mellifluous type of human being. Yeah. He's constantly talking. He's got these. St- strange he uses a strange vocabulary in yeah. a way that that is super stylized and that is very cohen-esque and um and and is a part of my own <laughs> my part of my own movie vernacular like watching you don't hurt yourself mordecai like these are <laughs> um these are they're all they've got such a keen ear for that that it was really interesting to me that like you said they after that first um, that first story and then the banker in the second story, they almost totally begin to like eliminate uh, yeah. a dialogue until the last story when they have this sort of cross chatter bickering that, that, that raises this fever pitch into this moment of song, right? It's a very, like the way that they do dialogue in this movie was very interesting yeah. to me. So which what, what's your favorite? What what um which one is going to stick with you the most of these stories? Let's talk about them. Um so I I I think we might be in agreement on this, but I think Meal Ticket um which is a really which is the story where the Liam Neeson character is a um is a traveling showman who has an act which is a a, a man who has no arms or legs, who delivers speeches out on the Western frontier. Mm-hmm. And as the story moves on, the effectiveness and the profitability of that man and his speeches begin to diminish. And the traveling showman now has to find a new act. And what happens in it is deeply tragic and sad and um, I mean, we we're going to spoil it, right? Like he, yeah, yeah, he, sure. he, he sees an act, which is a chicken that can do math and, and then promptly goes over and buys the chicken, makes that into his new act. 
and then at a convenient precipice takes the man with no arms and legs and presumably though we don't see it on screen hurls him off of it um it's troubling it's a it's actually it's almost told totally at night and so it's it's laden with shadows and then the only person that you see sort of lit up is the man as he's he performs these speeches, some of which are like poetry, some of which is Shakespeare and yeah. scripture. And, and I mean, or the very sparse dialogue, save for those very common and, and familiar texts of like the Gettysburg address, I think is also. One yeah. Thing. It's, um, it's Ozymandias, uh, the story of Cain and Abel, Gettysburg address two Shakespearean sonnets and the epilogue from Midsummer Night's Dream. I have a theory about this, so I'll come back to uh, it. For me, it's, um, it, I think the Coen brothers are having a larger conversation about the the usefulness of and profitability of art and um, and whether and how that drives us to do some like uh, tr- truly destructive things to the beautiful. Um, and I and I wonder if this has anything to do with Netflix and the larger business of which they're a part. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an irony here, right? That like this. This seems like a shot across the bow at the the capacity of us as as entertainers and as producers to just like seek out the next the next cheap and easy and crowd pleasing thing. Um, the 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 man who is giving these speeches seems like legitimately good at what he does. Like there's art and craft in his performance, um, which is not perhaps matched by the art and craft of the chicken who can do math. Um, well, in the sense is that you think, I, I think it's trying to tell us that he get the, that the showman gets conned at the end of this too. Right. Into thinking that this chicken might actually do math. Yeah. And so there's, there's some irony because then like, this is the Coen brothers moving to Netflix. This is the Coen brothers, um, for the, the, the first time I believe shooting digitally. So they, right. they are like, making some concessions to kind of the next easy, profitable entertainment delivery mechanism while also taking a shot at it. It's an interesting duality. I also read this. I mean, I don't think it's intentionally an allegory about church in any way, but it's hard for me to not see a little bit of that here where, you know, the the capacity of, of churches to look at the church next door and see the entertainment on display and see, oh, the, that's the easy way to bring in the big crowds, whatever it looks like, whatever kind of laser light show worship service they're doing. And that what what happens if we think about church and worship as a show instead of as a gathering of a community or a gathering of a body, which then pushes questions about the body with this man who has no arms or legs. So I think there's, there's a lot of, we, I think we could basically do a whole episode on this this um, short film. Uh, right. And there's and, a lot of there's our, a lot of earth there. And and as ministers, are we dependent on these people? Sure. Or are they our meal ticket? I mean, right. there's a lot of really interesting questions that come out of this. And it, it, what what's striking to me as you talk about this, Matt, is that I'm just now realizing that the that the the performer and um, uh, who who says all of these speeches and the 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 guy putting it on the Liam Neeson character they never talk to each other no there's there's no di- there's no dialogue between them 
And the only dialogue uh, that the performer ever says is stage performance. And then he, we hear those same verses used over and over again with kind of new intona- intonation and resonance as his context begins to change. Yeah. And so it, it, it's, it's actually really well done. And I, and I, as I was watching it and hear you talk about community, I think there is something to be said about how, how we as ministers are relating to the the work that we do, but also to to people. Is this is this just a, a performance that we put on with each other, or or are we actually required to have conversations with each yeah, other? Yeah, and and recognize our own interdependence upon each other. Other or is everything just a utilitarian um, means to to get what you want? And and that theme is sort of playing out here. It's similarly in the um, the other one that I really liked is the the gal who got rattled. Yeah, um, I, I didn't quite know where this this story was going. It, it took some twists and turns that I was trying to understand. I, I initially thought that she was playing everybody, that she had some larger Machiavellian way of existing in a frontier world as a woman. Right, and um, and that was. <laughs> that that interpretation slowly was destroyed yeah so this uh, so this is the one where zoe kazan is a, a on a on a wagon train with her brother who is seeming somewhat incompetent the brother dies and she is forced to try to figure out some kind of survival mechanisms ends up in a kind of a practical and also romantic possibly relationship with the cattle hander who's running point for the cattle drive uh and but then at the end ends up um uh ends up tragically tragically killed as part of a um a a battle with a um, tribe that's nearby so it's the kind of i think it's the longest of the pieces in here it feels like the most narratively um twisty as you said yeah and it's probably the one that probably could have been a movie yeah sure the other ones that they actually don't have enough to to sustain a sort of full motion picture but yeah um but in in watching that one i was sort of reflecting upon the the ways in which relationships form and how protection security and care of each other is also a part of the um the life of of a community like a church um that is in in many ways trying to travel somewhere i mean it is its own strange wagon train that's like moving through new territory not exactly knowing what's going to be around the corner and how relationships develop and it it, i think that story had something interesting to say so those are probably the two that i like the most um though i you know i'll ride for hanging out with tom waits talking to himself for five minutes yeah I, I liked the the, um, the gal who got rattled too, the wagon train. That's kind of that would be a, a tie for second with me with the the Tom Waits All Gold Valley. Um, I do think the gal who got rattled exposes. Uh, I think my my biggest critique with this film, which is that for all the ways it it adopts and plays with Western iconography, it doesn't actually challenge too yeah. many of them. And this shows up for me in. The, the Zoe Kazan character, who unfortunately is is not a woman who has s- some unique survival skill set that we might want or associate with a more modern take on a Western. She is actually like the maiden who needs a husband. Um, also, the the um, 
the Native American tribe that they end up battling with at the end is is just is treated as like straight savage. Um, and that's the language that's used. And I, I don't know that it's that the I don't know that the Coens are using it uncritically, but nonetheless, there's no moment of interrogation of some of this stuff that has made the Western so iconographic and in ways problematic. And, I, and, I, uh, and, I, and so I, I, that's why I think there's I think there's some there's some lack of modernization that shows up, especially at, in that story, as compelling as it and is. And I wonder if that's the what the first story is trying to do in this movie, which is sort of subvert or undermine the seriousness of the movie itself to say like, you know, sure. If you really wanted us to sort of undermine the traditional genre picture and the way that it's depicted both women, um, native Americans, as well as any number of other underrepresented and minoritized communities, uh, we, we could, but that's not really what we're trying to do here. Uh, and by, and we're going to show you this sort of cartoonish self regarding grinning type of beginning as a way to, um, adjust your expectations. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's sufficient ultimately, but I, I, I think that that first story is, is trying to cleanse whatever expectations you might bring to a film with the Coen brothers about the Westerns. So, okay, here's my quiz for you. I got a Coen Brothers quiz, quick one, but you got to choose and you don't think too much about it, okay? Uh, Miller's Crossing or Blood Simple? I've actually never seen Blood Simple, okay. but I'll ride for Miller's Crossing basically almost against anything. So, Okay, Raising Arizona or Barton Fink? Barton Fink. Big Lebowski or Fargo? Oh, man, it depends on the day. Okay. Those are, those are, two, those are apples and oranges. It's two moods. Okay, good. How about... Um, the Hudsucker Proxy or Burn After Reading? Hudsucker. Hudsucker is a better movie than you, plural, the world think that it is. <laughs> it's not a perfect movie, but it's got some really great stuff in it. Okay. I like that movie. Fargo or No Country for Old Men? No Country. Uh, no Country for Old Men uh, eh, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, it's it's another it's two moods. This is the thing with the Coens is that's that they're like exactly they're they're I think they're two broad kinds of Coen brother movies, and sometimes you have a movie that has a foot in both of them, and maybe Buster is one of those. But they're like for me, they're the Coen brothers movies that I love watching, and they're the Coen brothers movies that I think are 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 exceptionally important pieces of art. Um, that maybe that are that are harder to watch. So No Country is one of those. Fargo is one of those. Lewin Davis may be like the, 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 the epitome of those because that movie is impossible to watch, oh, I, but really great. Oh, really? I dislike that movie immensely. It's, it's, I've, it's, it's a stain as far as I'm concerned. But, um, um, okay, so, 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 so like, but like when I want to go watch a fun Coen Brothers movie, I'm not like, let's watch No Country. <laughs> I turn on, like, I turn on Big Lebowski. I, I turn on Big Lebowski. I turn on Bro- A Brother Where Art Thou. I haven't quite incorporated Hail Caesar into that canon, but I think it could belong there. Even Hudsucker is kind of in that, like, the fun, campy, to- imminently watchable Coen Brothers movie that I think is different than, like, A Serious Man, which I may feel about the way you feel about Lewin Davis, which is like, I cannot with that movie. 
Um, yeah, I have more time for that movie than Lone Davis. Uh, okay, deep cuts. Intolerable cu- Cruelty or The Lady Killers? I've not seen either one. Oh, really? That's interesting. Um, True Grit or The Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Uh, this is hard. They're both... I really like both of these movies a lot. Um, I don't know. I don't know, man. I I will probably come back to Buster more simply because I can come back for like a 20-minute piece of it. And there's something individual of, of those stories will resonate with me longer. But I really like True Grit. I, did, I think it's I did one too. of those that kind of like manages. It's not campy in the way that Lebowski or um, or Brother is, but it manages to do serious and really entertaining at the same time. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last one. Raising Arizona or Hail Caesar? Uh, Hail Caesar. I, I I don't ride as much for Raising Arizona as others, but that's just just personal preference. That's all I got. Before we move on, let me a, a couple of trailing things for me about Buster Scruggs that I I, I want to lay out there. One is uh, that the role of music in this movie I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. The different songs, the um, Buster's ballad, the Panhandler song in the All Gold Valley, the Tom Waits sequence. Um, and then the the song in the death carriage at the end seems to be we talked about earlier kind of the ways in which they're trying to poke some joyful holes into this nihilistic space may have the same relationship that uh, may, do, may have the same function as that moment of beauty does when James Franco sees the girl in the crowd who is beautiful but right before he um, the gallows hit him. Um, by the way, the like the funniest moment in the movie to me is him looking at the guy next to him on the gallows and saying first time. <laughs> it was hilarious. It was great. Um, and then last, and this is in the category of like things I have too cleverly thought about. I, I went through before the different pieces of literature that the um, performer is reciting in Meal Ticket, Ozymandias, Cain and Abel, Gettysburg, Two Sonnets, and the epilogue to Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. And I think if you try too hard, you can actually map those onto the different stories in Buster Scruggs. Beautiful. Give it to me. So that so that Ozymandias, which is the story of, of pride before the fall, right, yeah. is, um, is, is Buster. Um, Cain and Abel transparently is the story of, of is the Tom Waits story in the All Gold Valley. Yes. Um, uh, Gettysburg, in its own way, which is about a government by four of the people, is the language feels a little bit to me like the way that justice is administered by the crowd and the posse in the James Franco story. Good. Um, Love it. Um, the epilogue to Midsummer Night's Dream, where we are mere spirits, is clearly the final one when they're in the carriage on the way to death. Mm-hmm. Then you, then you, then then I start reaching a little more. The sonnets are a little harder to map onto the girl who got rattled and uh, and meal ticket. Um, although one of the sonnets, um, one of the sonnets is uh, you know when in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I all alone between my outcast, but beweep my outcast state and trouble death heaven with my bootless cries, and I look upon myself and curse my fate. Feels like it could be the monologue of the meal ticket performer himself. Um, the when in sessions of sweet silent thought, which is about being overcome by grief and mourning for those who've passed, is a hard sell for the gal who got rattled. I mean, I think if you really wanted to write the English class one hundred and one paper on this, you could make it work. But um, it's it's enough of a hard sell that I'm not sure I can 
confidently say, look, the Coens were clearly intentionally doing all of this, but that's my, that, that's it. my I, I, dark theory. If you put that up on Reddit right now, people would upvote it. Okay, well, I'm not going to do that with my day, but I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, let's move on. We're grateful. All right, let's do it. We're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the work they're doing. They just put up their book recommendations for um, for gifts that you can give to your um, your loved ones. I actually like this issue a lot. I actually wrote a couple of books. I recommended two. One was David Grant's um, Flowers of the Killer Moon which is an amazing, amazing book that came out in the last year. And then uh, Samin Nosrat's uh, Fat, Acid, Salt, Heat, which is a really, really good cookbook if you're into cooking. If you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technical Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. I also wrote a book. It's called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. It's out now. You can go and buy it anywhere and give it to your friends because they might like it. If you have like minister friends, they might they might enjoy it. All right. Well, thanks, Adam. Let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're looking at the lectionary passages for December 9th, which is the second Sunday of Advent. We've got the prophecy of Malachi. We've got Zechariah's song. We've got the beginning of John's ministry in Luke. We've got Paul's initial greeting in his letter to the church in Philippi. Adam, as you look through these Advent texts, what strikes you in the wake of our viewing of Buster Scruggs? So as this movie is really concerned about uh, death, it's concerned about endings and how humans end, end their time on Earth. I think it's appropriate as we enter into an Advent season to think about the end when we're at the beginning and we think about the um, so it's not often that the the cross shows up in our advent, but it, I, I think it's important that we keep the cross somewhere visible within the advent season and our advent imaginations. And I think this actually shows up in Zachariah's song. So um, there's the Luke passage that is in the place of where a psalm usually is within the lectionary. Um, and it's such a weird song. I mean, he's, his voice has been shut up for a really long time. And suddenly he, Zachariah, encourages everyone to name his son who is newly born John, the the son who will grow up to be John the Baptist. And then he immediately starts singing about Jesus, <laughs> which is such a strange moment in scripture. Um, right. He starts singing about this one who is yet to have been born, right? So the, the birth of John would precede the birth of Jesus. And and he's doing it at his own son's naming ceremony. And so the shape of the story is actually quite strange. And there's probably some good historical data to suggest that this that this song of Zechariah is really an altered hymn that would have been sung by the Johannine community and um, and who and John's followers. And it got sort of redacted to include Jesus. Um, but really, it got me thinking about how our imagination think about the end as we enter into new beginnings, as as we begin, um, uh, a, you know, a new as we as we enter into a school or something like that, you you begin to think about graduation. As you enter into a job, you think about like, so what what is it that is going to sort of like, when am I going to leave? Um, as you as you have children, like you also think about their mortality. It, um, and this is Zachariah's gift to us, I think, that 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 particular passage is constantly it has a really eschatological tone. Um, and the end, the salvation from death is also a subject at birth. Um, there's a, there's a great poem 
by Anne Bradstreet, who's one of the, the great colonial poets um, from New England, called Before the Birth of One of Her Children. And I commit it to you. It's a poem about death and, and about our eventuality. And but it's also on the occasion of the birth of one of her children. She can't help but think about the ways in which this child will die. Um, and I think Zachariah is doing something interesting here by also talking about how death and new life, the eschatological inbreaking is altering the, the present from the future. And so I, I would mess around with Zachariah and, and with the, with respect to Buster Scruggs, like a, a movie so obsessed with death also um, is constantly thinking about in what ways are actions leading to death, but in what ways are actions resistance to death? That's what I'm thinking about. Um, what about you? Yeah, two thoughts. One is uh, in the Luke passage, we get the the words of Isaiah um, on John's lips: the, um, "The prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth." Uh, I already talked a little bit about just the the visual joy of this movie and just. See, just watching the different Western locations play out. I think it does one of the things that fabulous Westerns can do, which is to help us help ground us in land and place and remind us of the topography of where we are. Um, and the topography that is, you know, at least in my current context, a topography that is hidden by cities and suburbs and streets and roads. And we lose this sense of, of land and the way that land shapes us. It comes very much to the fore in good Westerns, the way that it does here as we watch the wagon train push the wagons by hand up those little hills, as we watch Liam Neeson um, drag that the, his, his uh, wagon up into the Rockies. Um, there are these moments of, of recognizing the power of the hill and the valley. Uh, and I, I think it helps unearth something that we can gloss over in the Isaiah text, which is that this is a real topographical claim that the, the hope for Israel in exile is that they can come through the wilderness home again without having to climb up anything too high or climb down anything too steep that the way that that their path can be easy without having to um, do the hard work of going up impassable mountains or starving to death in some ravine. Um, and I, I, th I think there's, there's a grounding in that text that is too easy to overlook. And I think there's something helpful about the Western as a way of unearthing that, which is not necessarily to say that I would take that as a, way of preaching the Ballad of Buster Scruggs on this particular Sunday, but it's, there's something illuminating there. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that passage is so evocative because it, it is so topographical, it's so geographical. And that shows up a lot in this, in this film, in part because it's, it's not just an easy road home. It's a secure road home, right? Like, like the the valleys and the mountains are also they hide things they and that shows up in this movie especially I'm thinking about the the prospectors yeah the, the, there is this man who is doing this hard work and you get the sense that there is somebody else who has been watching him and that's what um, and that person can watch with with some relative ease because the man is doing all of this work out in the open in a valley but you can 
still maintain a high vista where you can surveil and understand the what what's going on. And when you do that, that that puts you in, a, in an insecure position. Yeah. And so to think about the what John's claim in the Luke three passage, it's it's also to say, like, we also can see where we're going and we can see what's ahead of us. And one of the, the deep tragedies of history is we have no idea what's around the corner. We, we, we just, we can't actually predict what's on the other side because our vision is occluded. And if you think about this, this passage as a way to, to, to also think about what vistas we have access to and how far we can see, um, it also takes on, I think, some some new life and some interesting character. Yeah, I like that. The other note I would have, and this is circling back to a little bit to what you said, is that because of the language of death in this, I think because of the language of death in this movie, and because there are six stories here, I probably, if I, if at my like hipster film studies church that doesn't exist, I would just make Ballad of Buster Scruggs into a six part Linton series. I think there's an oh, awesome great. Buster Scruggs Linton preaching journey to go on with these different stories. And I haven't fleshed out each of those sermons and I'm not going to, but there's, there's something there, which is also kind of a tacit admission that I, I'm not, I think making this into an Advent movie is a stretch. Um, but that here, you know, we've mentioned some ways you could do it, but I think this is a, this will make some really interesting, beautiful Linton reflection especially in the six parts that it has, um, if, if, if one were so inclined to go that route. Uh, yeah, I, I think so, too. I think, I mean, the, the, the subject matter itself probably lends itself to a Lenten sermon series. I, I, I do think that there's, there's value in trying to figure out how Lent and Advent, I mean, which are the two primary penitential seasons of the, um, of the Christian calendar, can find some harmony with each other. Um, we're constantly thinking about how our penitential seasons are, are buttressed by the celebration and the seasons of, of joy. Um, how do we also gather them together in a sense of, of, um, in a, in a sense of the need and the penitence and the waiting that happens as we tarry and, and look. Yeah. And, and maybe that's like the thing that I'm taking from, from this movie into an advent season is to, to just, to just lift up what you lifted up at the beginning of the show, which is that this, this movie loves the, the Vista. It loves the, the, the watching and there's the photography itself is just really stunning and beautiful and, and made me as someone who's an East coast transplant long for the Western world, the Western part of the country that is my world and feels so, so much at home for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that question of folding Advent and Lent or kind of finding their common connections is an interesting and complicated one. In some ways I feel like we overcorrect on that already. Um, hmm. That, and, and, and that we, because they are kind of these twin short form penitential seasons and that, at least among ministers and colleagues, I, I hear so many folks kind of bemoan the encroachment of Christmas into Advent. So what we need to do is fight back and make Advent more penitential or more like Lent so that we can preserve its integrity as a season um, and not let it get bogged down with um, Christmassy stuff. I think there's something to that. I also uh, 
Uh, Mike Linval, who was the pastor emeritus at Brick Church in New York, said something to me once that um, has stuck with me, which is that, that, you know, when pregnancy is a time of anticipate of joyful anticipation, and that is markedly different than the anticipation that we have as we move towards the cross. There's, it, it is the expectation of new life versus the anticipation of death are different kinds of waiting and different kinds of, of, of journeying. And that there's something, I think there's something important about lifting up the, the joyfulness and the hopefulness of Advent um, as, a, as a quote unquote pregnant time in a way that, mm. in a way that Lent isn't. And so I, I, I'm not entirely sure how to, how to live that out all the time, but it has, it has resonated with me and stuck with me. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it makes sense, especially too, if, if we live better into the, the whole of the church calendar too. I mean, as we try and fight to preserve basically the only two liturgical seasons that we care about, which are Lent and Advent, uh, if we were to fight to care for Epiphany and for the Christmas season as a, as its own set of practices, um, to care for the Easter season as its own set of practices, I think it would go a lot farther in helping us understand the ways in which all of these seasons have, have connections to each other that, um, that make themselves known in the practicing of them. And then maybe we wouldn't have to try and draw conclusions or draw Advent and, and Lent close to each other. And we'll just, we just let them reside in the season that they reside in knowing that the, that the seasons on either side are going to help connect them forward. So it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Adam, hit me. What's your postlude for the week? Okay, so this is a little weird one, but um, the the joy that I've gained most this week is the ministerial license that I take to rant about the elf on the shelf. Oh man, it's just Satan so, incarnate. Yeah, so the elf on the shelf is dumb. It's, <laughs> uh, it's it's idiotic, and and it is among the worst theology that you can bring into your home, um, and that it comes in such a sort of nice um, shape uh, and taste conf- of confection is all the more galling. But I. You can you can build your own rant about the elf on the shelf, but I want to encourage you to rant about it because it is so much fun. I I as a minister now I get to just goof on it all the time, and there have been a couple of of congregants who I've who have given my rant to, who are like, well, I, we just think it's kind of fun, and I'm like, it's not fun. <laughs> We are, we are, uh, we are undermining the formation of our children. Um, and it's, it's good fun for me to rant about it because it feels so inconsequential, but it has also been a covert way for me to try and encourage people to think about theological practice in their decision. Yeah. And it's been a way for me to say like, they're like, well, do you think it's a bad thing? And I said, well, I, as a the, as a theologian and as a minister, I, I think it is giving a narrative that I don't think is born of the gospel. 
And that's a strange thing to say to somebody about something that feels mostly inconsequential within the culture. But I've I've found it to be a, a way to open up larger questions about why I would care so much about a theological rationale for behavior um, as opposed to one that follows the sort of um, the the trends and fads of, of the world around me. And and it comes because I can I get to goof on the elf on the shelf, which no one truly really cares about. I freely endorse ranting about the elf on the shelf. It it synthesizes both like my theological predispositions and in my former life doing like um critical theory and cultural studies work. Know, like I all the all part. the like surveillance state stuff. I mean, this oh, is just like it is like, it is is you know it, it is the twin forces of Michel Foucault and Karl Barth both in my soul <laughs> ranting in one voice. You and me are you're speaking my love language right now. Like I, I got to do this with my wife the other day because of our, our, our we had our parent teacher conference and my kid doesn't transition well. And I was like, we both my wife and I both left that conference. And I was like, I don't care if he transitions well. I was like, he lives he goes to public school where they're trying to teach him and train him to work in a factory and they're trying to timetable him. And I don't think it's right. And I just and I went on my yeah. my critical theory. Foucaultian rant about something, and I, it just felt so good. <laughs> Very good. All right, Matt, what's your post loop? Well, mine is a little bit of a lament. Oh, we were. I'm I'm thrilled to have watched Ballad of Buster Scruggs. We we were not intending to watch this movie for this episode. The plan was to watch Wong Kar Wai's late '90s uh, Hong Kong film Chongqing Express, which is a little bit of a deep cut. Um, but it's also kind of a beautiful, a beautiful movie and a really cool Advent conversation that I've been wanting us to have for a while because it's a movie uh, about expiration and hope uh, in, in the context of Hong Kong as it is set to be handed over from the, as from a British colony to uh, to the Chinese mainland. Uh, we're gonna have that conversation someday. We couldn't today because that movie is unavailable for streaming. Uh, we don't talk much about availability on this show. Usually we just stream our movies via iTunes or Netflix and assume you all can do the same. Uh, I have Chunking on Blu-ray and we got stuck because Adam couldn't watch it. Uh, Filmstruck has it in its catalog, but Filmstruck is shuttering its doors, which is uh, sad in its own right. Um, but I think points to a larger problem, which is that... You know, I, and maybe this is my own, it's in some ways my own pr generational privilege, but like my cinephile soul came of age in a moment of widespread availability. It was as DVDs exploded and as Blu-rays came following, it was almost unheard of that a movie would get less available over time. It was just over time, we were gradually increasing the number of old prints that had gotten digital masters that would then be converted and printed onto DVDs, if not VHSs before that. Um, and now we're in this moment where that availability is shrinking. I mean, you can go and buy Chunking on Blu-ray right, right, right now, though it is not cheap, and I just discovered how valuable my Criterion Collection version of it is. Since it's now out of <laughs> it print, is. it's worth yeah. like 200 bucks, but I'm holding on to it. But nonetheless, like promise of the universal library that in some ways was born in best buy in 1998 and now is supposed mm -hmm. to be the promise of itunes and netflix is actually really really brittle and fickle like one site like filmstruck goes down and we lose so much access and we lose it without any agency 
and it, it what it practically means is that these films won't get watched except in like film school classes or with film school libraries that have them in circulation uh and it makes me it makes me sad um because the the universal library that matched us that met us at our method of consumption 15 years ago is no longer meeting us in our current method of consumption and that um that is just that's that's my lament for the day i also just wanted to watch this movie but i also think i mean as we as we think about how we were formed in our love of movies right we we did have film libraries that we could go to and we watched all of this weird stuff that you couldn't find and that was that was part of loving film at that particular moment of of the world which is access exploded and it was amazing that you could go and find these um small little art house films that came out of France in the sixties or something like that. And the criterion was doing its thing. And that was really exciting. Um, I just, I wonder what, how that forms people who watch movies who were our age then. And that's, that's the thing that worries me is I, I, I recognize that access is just a, it's a, is a true blessing and gift. And this is why libraries are, are some of the, the best idea that America, you know, the public libraries in particular were the best idea that, that, that America came up with, um, that there would be equal available and free access to all of these things that I think are so amazing and that they don't have that means that, that I don't know if people are going to like movies in the way, the way that we liked movies, which makes me sad. And maybe that, maybe that's a little solipsistic, but at the end of the day, it's, it's still true. Well, I think that about wraps up the Statler and Waldorf section of this episode (laughs) and the show as a whole. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. We love your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page, technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band. It's for the kids. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.